Jonah. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to the little prophet called Jonah. And if you don't have a Bible, in the seat back in front of you there is a blue one. And on those Bibles, in those Bibles, we're on page 451, uh, page 451. And if you need to use your table of contents, do it proudly. You don't need to be embarrassed. It's a tiny little book, easy to miss. And perhaps one that you have not turned to in a while, um, if ever. So we'll be starting this morning what we'll be spending all of uh, the month of February on. Now... Among the most famous stories in all of the Bible is certainly the story of Jonah and what's proverbially thought of as the whale. Now, we'll get to that whale bit, but not today. Fear not, the whale will come, but not this morning. Just because a book is famous, though, doesn't mean it's understood. That's certainly true of this particular book. Is Jonah about God's heart for the nations? Is it about Jonah's nationalism? Or to say it more directly, his racism? Is Jonah about the struggle to trust and obey God? even when we don't understand what he has said? Is Jonah about the baffling reality that simultaneously God is both just and merciful? Well, yes. Jonah is about all those things. But your previous exposure to the book may have emphasized one of those to the complete exclusion of the others. Jonah addresses all these things, and we'll discover each theme, Lord willing, as we work our way through it in the month of February. So let's jump in. Jonah chapter 1, and I'll read to get us started, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The book of Jonah opens with the massively significant phrase, the word of the Lord came. Specifically in this case, this refers to Jonah's call to preach to the Assyrians in a town called Nineveh. Nineveh is modern-day Mosul, Iraq. But more broadly, this phrase, the word of the Lord came, is raising an issue that's critical not to miss, that in fact spans many books of the Bible. It's the truth, captured by the phrase, the word of the Lord came, that God creates and God sustains His people by His word. God creates and God sustains His people by his word. 
This phrase, the word of the Lord came, occurs 109 times in the Old Testament. It is sort of code, if you will, for here comes something really, really, really significant. When the word of the Lord comes, God's people ought to be perked to listen. Perhaps even more significant is on the pages of the New Testament, we learn, we learn that the Word of God became flesh. Jesus Himself is the ultimate communication from God. We might even adjust the phrase slightly to say, the Lord of the Word came. In the Old Testament, the Word of the Lord came, but in the New Testament, the Lord of the Word Himself came. This reminds us, brothers and sisters, that God always calls His people together by means of His Word. And the church exists not in a way that's loosely connected to biblical truth, as though unity exists outside of it, but rather we exist precisely because the Word of the Lord came and the Lord of the Word came. God uses the instrument of His Word by the Spirit to save sinners, to transform us Christians into greater and greater holiness, and to mature entire families and ensure church families into Christ-likeness. Our church's membership statement of faith serves as our corporate confession of the major categories that we believe the Word of the Lord has come. And that whole idea is all gathered up here in this phrase, that we're a people of His Word. But notice here, in this particular instance, who the Word of the Lord came to. It came to, to Jonah. In a sense, this book begins with the assumption that we're rather familiar with Jonah. Maybe some of us are, but one of the things I love the most about this church family is there are always new people here who would have no idea who Jonah is. Brothers and sisters, what a gift that is, that the Lord gives us people every single week, largely due to the way in which you are investing in the community. Thank you for that work. If you don't know who Jonah is, let me tell you just a few facts about him. This book is entitled Jonah, named after him. But the book tells us nothing about him other than that he is the son of Amittai. However, we know from another book in the Bible, a book called 2 Kings. In the 14th chapter of 2 Kings, we know that Jonah was a prophet in the 8th century B.C. during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Now that just clears it all up, doesn't it? What we do know from 2 Kings 14, though, is that Jonah had been commissioned by God to be a prophet, to speak for God, to be God's mouthpiece. And Jonah, in the book of 2 Kings, was faithful to do it. As a prophet, Jonah's job was to speak 
for God. Now, beloved, God could, of course, chose, have chosen to speak in any way He wanted. But most often, God's Word is delivered through human agents. People who stand and say, this is what God says. Not by virtue of their own personality or their intelligence or their experience, but rather they are people constrained to what God has said. Jonah was one of those kinds of people. He was a uniquely authorized, commissioned agent of God. Now, thus far in our story, Jonah chapter 1, we've encountered no surprises. This is the way a lot of the prophets began in the Old Testament. But everything changes as we go from verse 1 to verse 2. In verse 2, we find these words, Arise! And go to Nineveh. Now, if you were blessed to grow up with a Christian parent or two, and you've heard this story for years and years and years, then the shock of that statement is something that's lost to you. So let me try for a few minutes to, to recapture some of the awe and disbelief that would have come to the original hearers. The fact that this says, arise and go to Nineveh, is absolutely stunning. For starters, now this is a little hard for us to grasp because we live on this side of the cross, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We are new covenant people who live with the Great Commission, having been explicitly given go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the ends of the age, Matthew 28. But prior to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, mission for the people of God was a come and see, not a go and tell mission. There is no broad evangelistic mandate in the Old Testament. It was not the responsibility of every Jew to go to the ends of the earth. I hope you enjoy your beverage, Austin. (laughs) He popped a cold one. Right up here in the front. (laughs) The framework for mission was incredibly different in the Old Testament. Here's what it was. God created a people group, quite literally. He placed them in the land of Israel. And then as they followed Him, He blessed them. And in so doing, as all the other nations heard that these are the people of God, then they were to serve as a display people. They could see tangibly, this is what it's like for people who 
follow God, love God, serve God, honor God, have been chosen by God. They were to put His glory on display. And as people came to see, then of course they would hear this good news that God is a God for all the nations. But it was come and see, not go and tell. And yet here in Jonah chapter 1 verse 2, Jonah is told, go and tell. Now certainly before this time, there had been a few prophets who had prophesied or given God's word to other godless nations. But never before, Jonah chapter 1 verse 2, had any prophet been sent out of Israel into the very heart of a pagan nation in which he was told to preach the good news to them. This is completely unprecedented. Never before had this happened. So Jonah, quite simply at that level, would have been stunned and in awe. And yet there's more going on, of course. What is substantially more shocking is that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. At this point in history, Nineveh was a leading city in the dominant empire of the day, the Assyrians. If you've had some world history, you will likely remember something of the wickedness of the Assyrians. But if you don't remember that, then you'll at least remember how wicked the king's names sound. Let me tell you a few of them. Tiglath-Pileser, Sargon, Sennacherib, Ashurbanipal. Those are some bad dudes. They sound like Marvel characters. But these were real kings. If the Assyrians were alive today, they would rightly be labeled a terrorist state. The Assyrians were one of the very first groups of people who took on the tactic of brutality in order to humiliate and then dominate. Even today, millennia later, the Assyrian Empire is known to have been one of the most brutal. If you're ever in London and have a free day, go to the British History Museum. In the British History Museum, you can spend half of that day touring the reliefs and relics of the Assyrian Empire. The excavations from Nineveh are remarkable. The king's palace has been completely recovered and much of it put back together on the walls in the British History Museum. The artwork in the kingdom of the Ninevites was designed to display something of their brutality in order to retell the story again and again and again of the people they conquered. Let me tell you a few of the things you can see on the walls there. The first thing they would often do as they conquered a people were to cut out the leader's tongues. 
This was a way of psychologically saying you no longer speak. Beheadings were common. And in these reliefs, the heads, decapitated heads, pile up as tribute to the king. One of the most brutal things they would do is they would kill the leader of the conquered people, stick his head on a pole, and then force the family to parade that pole through town. There's pictures of prisoners being stretched out and skinned alive. They would dismember people cutting off three limbs, leaving one, and then shake the hand of the dying person as they bled out to mock them. These are the cleaner things that I can talk about in this kind of setting. Do you understand now Jonah's reluctance to go to Nineveh? Some of those kinds of things had been done to his own people. Surely we can feel some sympathy for Jonah before we criticize his lack of obedience. A friend, if you look in these verses, you'll note that it says God became aware of the Assyrians' evil deeds. And God responded by sending Jonah. This is a reminder to us, a rather grave one, that while we may get accustomed to fornication, theft, drunkenness, and even murder, God never does. God sees. God knows. God will always deal with evil. Friend, if your sin hasn't yet been resolved by Jesus, eventually God will respond, and you'll bear the consequences yourself. Are you prepared for that? This old, old story serves as a reminder and a warning that God takes disobedience with a grave seriousness. Now, why exactly Jonah chose to run instead of go to Nineveh is not explained in chapter 1. It simply leaves us, as any good story would, hanging. Like, what exactly is going on with Jonah? We're left only to guess. But it's not hard to uncover his motives. The Assyrians had done some wicked, wicked things. How long would a Christian preacher have lasted preaching the gospel in the Islamic State's caliphate? How long would a Jewish rabbi have existed in the heart of Berlin announcing that Yahweh is sovereign. Certainly some of what Jonah felt was fear and concern for himself. But beyond that, what we'll find later in the book is this fact. And I tell it now 
just in case you don't make the next three weeks. It is one of the central issues in the book of Jonah. Jonah understood that for him to go to Nineveh and announce God's judgment was implicitly to announce a warning. Friend, that's what the the announcements of judgment in the Bible are always warnings. And if people heed the warning, meaning if they believe that message as coming from God, they turn from their sin and turn to Him. And guess what? The judgment doesn't come. The judgment is always conditional on a lack of repentance. Jonah knew, if I go preach the gospel and they heed the warning and they repent, then what will God do? Well, God will send His grace and His mercy. And Jonah did not want that. In the language of our day, Jonah's attitude towards the Assyrians was go to hell. And Jonah knew if he went and preached this message, then they might not. And so Jonah ran. Instead of going from his home, the roughly 500 miles east to Nineveh, he chose instead to go south to a port city, boarded a ship, and then took it toward what he would have known to be the end of the known world, some 2,500 miles the opposite direction. Now notice the phrase in verse 3, twice repeated. From the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord. It's not as though Jonah decided to skip one sermon. Or he cut out one paragraph in the Bible that made him nervous. No, friend, he quit. He tendered his resignation as a prophet. He didn't give two weeks notice. He was ready to walk away, or rather sail away, from God. So the question we're meant to ask at this moment is, does that work? Can a refusal to submit to God's revealed will, and even a prophet's decision to run in the opposite direction, prevent the spread of the mercy of God? If God is after an outbreak of mercy... Can a disobedient prophet inoculate the people? Well, let's climb aboard this ship to Tarshish and find out. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea and lightened it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain asleep and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. 
Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Beloved, certainly every storm is not caused by the discipline of God. But this one was. And certainly not all suffering is directly connected to one's sin. But this hardship was. The fear of the sailors offers a window into just how severe this storm must have been. You try saying that. (laughs) Everyone on this ship thought they were going to die. Everyone except Jonah. Jonah is down in the heart of the ship, fast asleep, while everybody else is crying out to their God, begging for mercy. Their hope was, of course, maybe one of the hundreds of gods that we can call on will help us. While the only one who knew of the one true God was asleep. Running from the presence of God is exhausting. Have you tried it? It will drain you like nothing else. I can't help but wonder, though, that maybe Jonah's physical sleepiness is a fact pointing to the reality that he's hitting the spiritual snooze bar too. This is a guy that's checked out. The captain came down, no doubt, to grab more cargo and carry it back up and throw it out. That tells us something of how severe this storm was. And perhaps as he moved another crate, then he saw Jonah asleep. And in his astonishment, he yelled at him, Arise! Call out to your God! Does that sound familiar? God told Jonah in verse 1, Arise! Call out against Nineveh. The Phoenician sailor is here calling a prophet of the one true God back to prayer. And he's using the same word that God used in verse 1. Christian, if you are really a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot run away from God. You may try, and you may get further than another, but you will fail. You cannot outrun God. God may even send pagan sailors to call you back to Christ. He will hold you fast. This is one of the great assurances the Christian has. Jonah, brothers and sisters, had a problem with the job that had been assigned to him. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. But it's also clear that the specific job assigned to him wasn't the root issue for Jonah. 
It wasn't just the job that was troubling him. It was the one who assigned him the job. It was God. One author, I read this way, put it this way, Jonah concluded that because he could not see reasons for God's command, there couldn't be any. Jonah doubted the goodness, wisdom, and justice of God. Can you relate? What happens when you encounter something in God's Word that doesn't make sense to you? One reaction is to board a ship to Tarshish to try to get away from the presence of God. Some of us might have done that. It's possible to be sitting here and to be doing that now. But honestly, pastorally, that's not what I see the most. I think there's another habit that is more common today. Today, rather than simply run from God, it is more common that we try to revise God's Word. We take a posture that says that can't be what that means. And then we try to change it. A few examples. The Scripture clearly says that no one can come to the Father except through Jesus. But that is hard to swallow. And so it's more common that someone would think, well, that really means that anybody can come to Jesus through any religion, whether they recognize that to be explicitly coming through Jesus or not. Perhaps the dominant way this is happening today is that when the people think when the Bible rebukes homosexual behavior, they'll say it's only talking about non-committed, non-marital homosexual behavior. Because if Paul had known it could be legally possible, then he never would have written what he wrote. Friends, you can't run from God. And you can't revise His Word. If we as a church were to take whole-scale liberty and begin to say what God doesn't say, then we would cease to be a church. And God is going to build His church. If we won't participate, He will go somewhere else among the people who will. To be a Christian, to be a church, is to sit under God's Word, even in the parts we don't fully understand, even in the parts we have a visceral, emotional reaction to. This is what it means to follow God. God may send a storm or a sailor or a teacher or a friend, but He is after 100% submission of His people to His and he will have it.
Let's see what happens as Jonah is awake. Verse 7. By the way, how would you feel if your alarm said, Arise, you sleeper? Parents, you ought to try that this week with your children. Husbands, I would not recommend it with your wife. Verse 7, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where are you from? What's your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, no one is suggesting that the way to make decisions is to throw dice or cast the yin and yang. But here... It worked. Friends, if God is fully, all-powerfully, sovereignly in control of everything, then He can use casting dice to reveal an issue. And here He did. God caused Jonah to be exposed. Now, to Jonah's credit, when the moment came for him to lie or come clean, he came clean. His confession of faith is bold and clear. He acknowledged his Hebraic identity. He described his principal disposition as being a God-fearer. And most germane to this moment... He said, my God made the sea and the land. Now, notice the reaction of the sailors. They've been afraid. I mean, these are weather-worn men. But here, they're so frightened that they're calling out to their gods and throwing out the cargo they were paid to deliver. But it's only here that we're told they were exceedingly Afraid. Why? Well, at this period in time, it was believed that the gods were territorial. Meaning, if you lived in X place, then you worshiped X god. And if you traveled south to another place, there was a different god. And over here, there was a different god. On and on and on and on. But Jonah, Jonah here claimed, that his God was the creator of the sea they were on. And that was horrifying to the sailors. You see, even they understood that if God created something, then God is in charge of it. Oh, that we would believe that today. If God made the sea, it's his. It submits to him. He can direct its waves, its wind, its rain, its might. And so they were petrified. 
Because Jonah's God was not a small God over a little nation state. He was the God of all the sea and all the land. Now, don't miss the irony in verse 10. Let your eyes glance back over it. Jonah thought he could outrun God. But even the non-Christian, false, God-worshipping sailors knew God was after Jonah. You can't outrun God. It don't work. Now, the last paragraph wraps up this first scene in Jonah. Verse 11. They said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, for they, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. It is so ironic that people who did not love God or know God at this point were more merciful and gracious to Jonah who did. Even after they knew the source of the storm, they continued to try and save Jonah's life. Verse 14, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased. From its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Church, Jonah saw himself as a man under the discipline of God. He recognized the error of his ways. But very likely, rather than repent, he just told the sailors to give him over to the judgment of God. Hurl me into the sea. As an aside, did you notice how many times the word hurled is used in this chapter? This is the hurl chapter of the Bible. And they're on the sea in a storm. The irony. Jonah accepted his guilt. He knew full well that the wages of sin is death. He accepted the truth that the soul that sins will die. I wonder if you're here this morning and you've not yet trusted Jesus Christ. Have you considered that if the Bible's true, then you are in a most precarious position? The sailors tried everything they could to survive the storm without it needing to be resolved by the untimely disembarkation of Jonah. If we add them up, they tried five different ways to calm the seas, but none of them worked. Finally, they took their sixth 
attempt and hurled Jonah into the sea. Now just for a moment, imagine being there. You are on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean. You have been crying out to your gods, throwing stuff over, certain of death. But in an instant, Jonah hits the water and everything goes calm. Imagine being there. The display of the power of God unparalleled to anything they had ever seen before. And what was their reaction? Well, these pagan sailors were changed. They feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice. They made vows. In short, they worshipped. Now, this is amazing. See, the story begins with the commissioning of a man of God to go on a mission to the Gentiles. And the story ends with pagan, God-hating, idol-loving worshipers of foreign gods coming to see and savor the one true God. The point couldn't be more clear. Not even a disobedient prophet can stop God's mercy toward the repentant. Jonah tried to run away, and God transformed that running away into a time in which God's word was heard without Jonah saying much of anything. Brothers and sisters, not even a disobedient prophet can stop God's mercy toward the repentant. Is there anyone in your heart that your disposition says, go to hell? Is there any aspect of the Word of God that you have said, I'll revise that? Is there any area of unrepentance? May Jonah chapter 1 stand as a reminder that God will have a people for Himself, a people of His Word. He will send His Word to His people and they will become His worshipers. May we be that. And friend, if you've never trusted Christ, Jonah 1, this is an old, 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 old story. But it tells an incredibly relevant truth. There is a God to whom all is owed. For He made us. And all will one day face And that facing Him can either be welcome because you have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There is no judgment for you, only mercy and grace. Or that can be, depart from me, I never knew you. Friend, if you've never trusted Jesus, we'd love to tell you more. Stick around in a few moments. 
Ask somebody sitting near you, tell me more about Jesus. They'd love to do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that no disobedience on the part of your people can stop your global mission to have a global people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. We pray that we would increasingly be people who have that kind of passion for you. And we pray your word would go forth from us. In Jesus' name.